0: Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden, Derek Weston, and Sam Chain.
1: Hello, Food and Faith Podcast community. We're glad to be back here together. Um, Sam and Derek went rogue the last couple of episodes, <laughs> uh, but that was... It's my blessing and uh, <laughs> I loved listening to the pod. Um, I honestly don't often listen to it after I record. Yet. But
0: you listened for quality control.
1: <laughs> no, I,
0: listened
1: to I was excited to hear the guests. I was like, hey, I missed out on these cool guests. I gotta like, gotta catch up. Um, but I am glad to be here with Derek today and I'm really excited about our guest. Um, so Derek and Sam had the like <clears throat> groundbreaking pod of what was it three male, yes three males anyway. But I get to be part of a groundbreaking pod today, which is we have our first children's book author on the pod. Um, Laura Allery has loved books since she was barely big enough to clamor up the stairs to the bookmobile that rolled into her Halifax neighborhood once a week. At school, she made her own books out of Manila paper. I don't know how to pronounce this word.
2: Oh, mucilage? Yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's the what people used before the white glue. Yeah. yeah.
1: That's funny. It's I, I know what the word is, but I was like, I've never said this word out loud before. <laughs> Thank
2: you. I'm dating myself.
1: That's excellent. Mucilage and crayons. The first story she can remember writing about was about a little girl who kept spilling paint and having to figure out to turn the messes into pictures a good rule for life these days Laura considers herself lucky very lucky to work in a beautiful library and write her own books they look more professional than the handmade ones but the joy of creating them is much the same she also loves to sing and play the guitar which she says is a work in progress and try to keep up with her three children with what her three children are reading she makes her home in Toronto where along with clover and a lot of dandelions she does her best to grow kindness so I am just thrilled to have you on the show today, um, we connected last spring because mm-hmm. we're in a writers' community together. Um, because we were both trying to launch books during the pandemic,
2: right. um, <laughs> same, same week we said.
1: <laughs> I think it was the same week, yeah. and both of our books had something to do with growing <laughs> food and sharing it, and how that builds community. So um, Laura's book, "What Grew in Larry's Garden." um I feel like I don't know I feel like um Emily Scott and I were book buddies in launching in similar times and both about church planting but I feel like you and I are book buddies about like the grown-up version and the kids version of what happens <laughs> when, you, when you grow food and share it with each other so um we're so glad to have you here on the show today
2: well thank you so much for inviting me and I'm honored to be the first children's author that's great very cool So
0: we like to start our interviews with the question, uh, what is your geography, what's the land and food and culture and space that have shaped you and made you who you are?
2: Yeah, I was thinking about how to answer this one. That's an interesting question. It's a there's more to it than where are you from? Um, I mean, I currently live in Toronto, Ontario, so very urban environment. I've been in Toronto or sort of in and around the city for about 30 years now, believe it or not. So more than half my life. Um, and Toronto is a very, very diverse city. And I love that about it. Um, it probably doesn't, it, it doesn't feel to me as big as it actually is because there's so many neighborhoods, but, but it is, um, I mean, it's tremendously diverse. And, and I've, always, um, I've always found that a very appealing part of, of where I live. Um, I grew up in a much smaller city in Halifax, Nova Scotia, um, on Canada's east coast. So I would say um, I always gravitate toward the ocean and toward water. That's um, an important part of my identity, although exactly how I'm not sure. I'm just attracted to it. And of course, in Toronto, I just I I have Lake Ontario. I have to pretend Um, in Halifax, at least when I was growing up there, it was not nearly as diverse an environment as um, as where I live now. I did have friends whose families came from other places, but I think that, um, you know, what I saw around me and the circles I moved in tended to reflect my own background, which was this English, Scottish, um, Irish, and a little bit of French. So um, my food and my social circles and my church, they were quite homogeneous in that so it's been um, it's been good for me to grow beyond that over the years um, another place I have to say that's really significant to me is Prince Edward Island um, when I was a kid growing up my my parents used to take me there at least for a week every year and there was just something profoundly peaceful and tranquil about it and even though it was a short time it was very significant and then as an adult I put down much deeper roots there and I even had a family cottage for 10 years which unfortunately had to sell but and this past summer was the first year in in my memory that I have not gone to PEI Mm. Um, and I mentioned that because that was always my creative place. A lot of my books started out their life on PEI and I was actually afraid this year that that I wouldn't be able to write if I wasn't there Um, walking those beaches and um, seeing those skies Um, happily I actually wrote some stories some new stories on my deck in my house in Toronto so apparently that uh, that inner geography is is enough to keep me going but um, but yeah that's a really important part of who I am and what shaped me
1: well and I'm struck um we're going to ask you to read your read um, what grew in Larry's garden in a few minutes. But um, one of the things that I am struck with in in your story and in my own experience of what happens when we garden in urban environments is that there's a feels like there's a crossover of that kind of, of that more like what you're describing on PEI. You know that that kind of expansiveness, the the creativity, space, and that we don't always necessarily associate that with these urban settings, but the urban settings have more of this diversity and they have the community and they have, the, I mean, there's like, you know, it's, it's more crammed together in a way. Uh-huh. And so I'm just interested in hearing about your two geographies, which are seemingly um, different, but how you actually, you connect them in your, in your story and in your work of that connection of nature and of people and community and, um, finding that in a in a more urban setting
2: yeah I think the creativity and the community is I mean the the spirit is the same although the setting may look very different Um, like another piece of my geography that I didn't mention is that um, although I grew up in Nova Scotia my parents are actually from the prairies my dad's from Saskatchewan and my mom's from Alberta so my um, paternal grandmother grew up on a farm and in my recollection, her—I mean, she moved to um, Saskatoon, a city, when she was, well, in the last decades of her life. But her entire backyard was consumed by this gigantic garden, and she did all of the preserving and the canning and like all of these life skills that I don't have. I've seriously <laughs> dropped the ball. Um, but she brought her, like sh- she brought that. Um, creativity. And I was going to say self-sufficiency, but it's sort of a funny word because I look at her, um, you know, and somebody who um, was born prior to the depression and, and from my perspective does have a lot of um, skill and self-sufficiency. But then she also has a profound sense of her dependence on the land and interdependence on the people in the community mm-hmm. around her, because in these little tiny rural communities, people did count on count on their neighbors to um, to support them and get them through difficult times and when she when you can see somebody importing that into an urban environment um, it's awesome and and I was actually um, I've had the privilege of getting to know Larry Zakarko, whose story inspired this book and I see that in spades in him like if you were to just go and visit his backyard it doesn't look like much really, really small. And he's actually had to you know, put mirrors on his fence to help gather a little bit more sunlight. And um, it's, it's by no means, um, you know, it's a very humble looking space. And yet what he's able to do with it in terms of building community is really extraordinary. So there's this, there's this spirit that, that shows up in all kinds of different places. Well,
0: that's a great segue into what grew in Larry's garden. What was, what was your inspiration? Um, obviously, this, this Larry was yeah. a big part of the inspiration, but, <laughs> but what made you want to write a story about him? And, and, and what made you want... Um, I'm, I'm always interested in, in author's process, um, creative process. And what made you want to write this? And particularly, what made you feel like this was an important story for children to hear and know?
2: Um, okay, so there's a few parts to that question. The the, the most
0: sorry, I'm really bad part. at that. One. I, I
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I'll tell you that sometimes I have to work really hard at coming up with an idea for a story, and sometimes they just get dropped right in my lap. And that this was one of those. I was sitting at breakfast, reading the paper back in the days when I actually got a physical newspaper, and I was looking through the the local section. And there was this article about uh, a dispute between two neighbors that had ended up in the the, um, Committee of Adjustment. So it doesn't sound particularly you don't hear that and think, oh, that would make a great children's book. Um, But what was interesting about it was they'd they'd gotten into a a dispute about the height of the fence between their properties. One of the neighbors had made it like many, many feet taller than the um, city bylaws permitted and They could not come to an agreement. So they'd taken it to the Committee of Adjustment. And then one of the neighbours, Larry Zakarko, came to the committee meeting and made this impassioned speech about why it was so important um, that he have light in his backyard. And where it got fascinating was the, um, the committee all supported him. So they were able to hear his argument and say, this isn't just about a disagreement about two neighbors and you know I want more light in my backyard there's something bigger at stake here and what is at stake is the health of the wider community and so the city council said yep fence has got to come down so it was one of these stories I was sitting there at the table and it just kind of buoyed me up the whole day yeah. and I went and found the digital version of it and shared it to my uh, Facebook feed <laughs> and uh, Within an hour, two people had messaged me and said, "This would make a great book." And I hadn't thought of it at first. And then I thought, you know, I think it would. So um, I set to it over the next couple of months and got a manuscript in shape that I felt had potential. And um, happily, Kids Can Press agreed. So that's where it all started. And I just thought there was so much, um, so much in there. I think. I mean, when when you're writing, especially for children, well, writing anything, I guess you kind of have to keep the the market or the audience in mind and say, okay, is there anybody out there who would want to read this and who would benefit from reading this? But but that also has to be held in balance with um, with what with what moves you as a as a creator and um, and just my emotional response to the story was so immediate and so strong. I thought yeah, I can do something with this, so. Well,
1: why don't you read us the story? I would be happy. I've read it multiple times, (laughs) but Derek, I don't think has heard it and my listeners (laughs) maybe have not heard it yet, so.
2: Okay, Derek, should I hold up the pictures for you?
0: (laughs) Please, yeah.
2: Okay, so, What Grew in Larry's Garden by Laura Allery, and I have to um, give credit to the illustrator, Cass Reich, who's also from Toronto. So she brings some of her um, sort of West End sensibility into her pictures. And it is published by Kids Can Press. In a sprawling city, in a leafy neighborhood, on a narrow street, in a cozy house with a tiny yard, lived a girl named Grace. Next door, in a yard just as tiny, Grace's neighbour, Larry, had a garden. In his garden, Larry grew all sorts of vegetables, but not ordinary ones. There were buttery yellow carrots and purple potatoes, rainbow chard and scarlet runner beans, rosy tomatoes the colour of ripe peaches, and black ones with red insides. You won't find these in most grocery stores, declared Larry, admiring a zebra-striped tomato. Grace thought Larry's garden was one of the wonders of the world. Every spare moment she had, Grace helped Larry in his garden. Together, they watered and weeded, planted and pruned, hoed and harvested, And when bugs burrowed into the carrots and slugs and snails chewed the lettuce, Grace and Larry solved the problem together. We can figure this out, said Larry. At the library, Grace learned that lots of bugs don't like the smell of marigolds. Grace and Larry planted marigolds among the carrots, and the bugs disappeared. As for the slugs and snails, they picked them off with their bare fingers, Our hard work will be worth it, said Larry, popping a slug into a bucket. This is important. We're not just growing vegetables. What are we growing? asked Grace. Wait and see, said Larry. Keeping squirrels away from the tomatoes was a bigger problem. We can figure this out, said Larry, scratching his head. They built little cages out of wire. The tomato plants could grow inside the wire, but the squirrels could not get at the fruit. Sometimes fences are handy, said Larry. When summer ended and autumn came, Grace helped Larry gather and dry seeds to save for next spring. Later that winter, they started growing the tomato seeds in little cups. There were hundreds of them. Larry, a teacher, took the tomato seedlings to school so his students could look after them. What will they do with all these plants? Grace wanted to know. That's the best part, replied Larry. These are not just tomato plants. What are they? asked Grace. Wait and see, said Larry. Winter melted away and spring sprouted. One warm afternoon, Grace found Larry on his porch with a pile of papers in his lap. You wanted to know what my students would do with our plants, he said. Listen to these letters. Dear friend, I'm the kid who used to steal pears from your trees. I am giving you this tomato plant to say sorry. Sincerely, Matthew. Dear bus driver, I rode on your school bus for years. You were always so friendly to all the kids. I'm giving you this tomato plant to say thank you." From Adira. Dear Mrs. Bianchi, I live next door to you, but we hardly ever talk. You have the most amazing flower garden. It makes me happy just to see it. I am giving you this tomato plant to tell you that you make the world more beautiful for a lot of people. Best wishes, Amrit. My students will give the plants away, and they wrote these letters to tell why, explained Larry. Every plant is a gift, a little green tendril reaching out to someone, connecting people. Now I see, cried Grace. We were growing a whole lot more than tomatoes. Exactly, said Larry. But a shadow fell. One afternoon, Grace went outside and found Larry sitting among his tomatoes. The plants looked wilted. So did Larry. And then Grace saw why. The neighbor on the other side had added a big panel to the top of his fence, blocking out the sun on Larry's garden. So much for my tomatoes, Larry said sadly. The looming fence made the garden seem smaller than ever just a tiny patch of earth. Grace looked at the drooping tomato plants and thought about how they spread kindness. She gave Larry a hug. We can figure this out, she said. Larry went next door to speak to his neighbor, but they could not agree. He says the fence makes him feel safe, said Larry with a sigh. I guess that makes sense. Said Grace slowly, thinking about the handy fence that protected the tomato plants from hung- hungry squirrels. But I have another idea. What's that? wondered Larry. Wait and see, replied Grace. The next morning, when Larry's neighbor stepped outside to get the newspaper, there on the porch was a small pot, a packet of seeds, and a note. Dear neighbor, I live two doors down from you, and I like to help Larry in his garden. I am giving you these seeds to say I hope we can all be friends. I think having good friends is the best way to feel safe. Sincerely, Grace. P.S. I have a plan. Could you meet me outside on Saturday morning? That weekend, Larry heard hammering. When he went outside, he found Grace in the yard next door, working side by side with his neighbor. The high panel on the fence was gone. So was the shadow. Now they were pounding nails into the fence and tying strings to make a kind of ladder. Larry, cried Grace, come and see. Larry peered over the fence and saw seed packets. We're planting beans, explained Grace. They're going to climb the fence. Larry's neighbor looked up from the string. He was nodding. I figured we could put this fence to better use, he said. That afternoon, Larry and Grace and their neighbor sat down together and feasted on fresh lemonade and cherry tomatoes from Larry's garden. They were still warm from the sun. Mm -hmm.
0: That might be my new favorite moment of the podcast.
1: <laughs> story time.
0: Story
2: time. stories. <laughs> hey. oh. Stories are for everybody. I, I say that all the time.
0: That was really beautiful. Um, thank you for thank you for sharing that. Um, there I, it's. I, I, there's so many things as a gardener. There's so many things firing in my in my head <laughs> as I hear that story, and I I I, I really love how. Um in 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 the simplicity of a children's story you've brought so many things to the forefront of things that we can grow in the garden that aren't found in the grocery store and Mm -hmm. the idea of gardens building community and the idea of um of relationship that that being able to um give away what we grow builds builds relationship and can be such a wonderful gift Mm -hmm. i i i I'm kind of blown away by it, and I kind of wish I had read beforehand so I wouldn't be <laughs> as blown away right now. Um, but oh, it's, no, beautiful, this is beautiful it's this a beautiful story. It's a beautiful story.
2: Thank you, thank you. Um Interesting. I, I, was, um, I was, I was, I've had to do. I've done a couple of um, online readings or partial readings, and and I was in the midst of one of them one day, and I had my computer oriented so that I was looking out the front window, and I saw a neighbor walk up and put something on my porch while I was in the middle of talking about the story. And when I went outside afterward, it was actually a tomato plant, Um, (laughs) an heirloom tomato plant. And uh, yeah, so even in, even in my own life in the process of introducing this book to people, there's been um, giving and receiving, which is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it
0: really is.
1: I think that, we often talk about growing food and giving it away and how that, you know, and sharing it. And there's something to that, but that you take it a step forward further, which is giving people the opportunity to grow themselves, to be able to giving tomato plants away. It's not just giving the tomatoes away, but giving the plants away. And then to take it that step further to have them be a a specific, um, uh, I'm sorry, or I'm, or thank you or invitation to, to feel you know neighbors neighbors can make you knowing your neighbors can make you feel safe that um, just feels like it it articulates this deeper work that can happen when we are are sharing the growing of our food as well as the eating of our food um, and i just think that's that's really inspiring i i mean our podcast listeners are tired of probably of us talking about our own gardens, but, um, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> um, I had so much fun this year putting, um, more and more, uh, pots of, you know, of, uh, vegetables around our house and the conversations I've had have, have, um, expanded into actually people, you know, plant sharing and that there's, there's like, neighbors who are sharing, you know, tomatoes and other things. And um, I'm already excited for next spring because I think that there's some conversations that have even happened this fall and that will, will, you know, expand that. And there's just, there's just something about um, how the connections over, over food, but then over growing food um, can take you deeper and can really um, enhance that fabric of community. So
2: Well, One of the things, when I first heard um, a little bit about Larry's Kindness Project and then had a chance to speak to him about it, I think the thing that moved me most um, was not simply the sharing, which in itself is a beautiful and powerful thing, but the challenge he gave to his students to give the plant to somebody they didn't know, that was what was incredibly difficult for, well... For many of us, but certainly for his students, he, because he specified that he said you can't go and you know give a tomato plant to your next door neighbor you've known for 12 years. Or he said you have to um, you have to look further afield, go beyond the circle that you're comfortable with, and pay attention to the people that who are around you but you haven't really been noticing. And then, um, of course, to to make it personal, to handwrite this letter and to deliver it he said some of his students were absolutely petrified. They did not know how people were going to respond. Um, and for me, that was a really powerful part of the project because fear, I mean, there's the neighbor's fear that leads him to build the fence. There's the fear of the students in, in not wanting to push beyond the comfortable circle. We, I, think, I think we all know that kind of fear and experience it. So that was an important part of the story for me.
0: It actually feels like it's it's interesting in the last few episodes, we've had these really big, heady, systemic uh, conversations about, um, particularly about racial justice. Mm -hmm. And there's, again, I think what's kind of beautiful in this, in, in, in the, in the framework of a children's story, you actually begin to tackle some of these, bigger systemic issues by putting them at a, at a really personal level. Um, I'm, I'm really interested. I think there's some, some really, maybe some obvious um, things to take away, but what are you hoping that kids who read this or, or adults who read it with their kids, um, what are you hoping that they take away from, from the story?
2: I hope that, um... I guess if I were to boil it down to two things, I would say gratitude and awareness. Mm. I'm hoping that people will read the story and then look around their own communities and ask themselves, who am I not seeing? Mm. Who am I, who am I passing by? Who is, who's actually, um, Maybe contributing to my life in ways that I'm not even noticing, um, and and how can I do a better job of seeing them and and also expressing appreciation for who they are and what they do, and then I think that the that like the bravery is part of that. Um, you know, it's one thing to kind of become aware of it, but then actually to let that person know, yeah, and. I have a real thing for handwritten notes too. I actually, I really like to write letters. So if somebody out there was inspired to um, to write a letter of appreciation, maybe to somebody they, um, they haven't reached out to before, that, that would that would really warm my heart.
1: And they don't have to wait till the spring when they have a tomato plant to go. Oh, that's
2: right. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I have another book where, um, a family down the street, oh, gosh, I didn't even know when they started it, like six years ago. It was one night during Advent and I, I was feeling kind of down. And anyway, there was this knock on the front door and I, I opened the door and it was the family from down the street with this wagon load full of cookies. And they were, of, of course, that's off limits this year, but but they were delivering them to people on the street. I never, I don't think I'd ever met the family before other than just to kind of nod on the sidewalk. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, was kind of blown away by that gesture. So I put it in a book and then I dropped off a copy of the book at their house. And anyway, so now we talk all the time, but it's just,
1: yeah. it's lovely. What is the title of that book?
2: It's called look a child's guide to Advent and Christmas.
1: Well, that's an appropriate book for this month. Yes. Definitely. I'm going to have to order that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So can I ask just kind of a, a general question of what what got you into writing for children specifically? I think um, it's I, I'm I'm imagining it's it's a different kind of writing. Um, it's a different kind of of, of experience, and I, I'm really interested in in what what drew you to writing for for children. Okay,
2: so. I should start by saying that I have always loved children's books, like I've, I've collected picture books long before I ever had children. Um, and I think somewhere back in my mind, I, I did have this idea that it would really be a dream of mine to publish one one day, but I didn't actually do anything about it, like so, so many of those little dreams we carry around in a drawer in our head. Um, and I, I had actually—I I was aiming for an academic career, been finishing off a PhD in New Testament, and I came to this one of these life crossroads where I convocated at the on, on All Saints Day in November, and then my first child was born the following month. So I was kind of at this, oh my gosh, which which direction do I go? What do I do? And um, I, I made the choice to not to pursue the, the career path, but to stay home with my son. And ultimately I had two more children. Um, but I'd also, <laughs> I'd always loved to write for pleasure, whether it was keeping a journal or like I say, writing letters to people. Um, but I found that after I finished my thesis, I couldn't write anything. Mm. And I, I remember saying to somebody one time, I, I compared it to this um little lime tree that might talk about growing things. My, my mom had this lime tree and limes don't grow happily in Nova Scotia, but somehow she <laughs> managed to put it in a sunny place and it produced one lime and then it died. <laughs> <And> I said, <laughs> I am the lime tree. I feel like I I've produced this 300 page thesis and now there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing else I can't write. And I felt very grieved because this, um, this form of self-expression that had been an important part of me seemed to be gone. I couldn't even write a thank you note. Um, and I felt like maybe if I was going to recover from that, I needed to try something completely different. So I, I, I tried writing a story for my son and it was really bad. Like, <laughs> um, but, but it kind of unlocked something. And so then I tried some more, and you know I I learned things like I probably shouldn't try to write in rhyming verse because <laughs> it's just not, it's not the best not the best choice for me. Um, and then um, the more I did it, the the more satisfying I I found it, and the more I realized that I think what had drawn me to picture books my whole life um, was not that they were simple, but that they they at least the good ones, distilled something really powerful into something simple. Mm. Um, and I I just, um, yeah, I, I kind of found my medium. Now, who knows, my children are a lot older now, and maybe I might try my hand at other types of fiction. But um, right now, picture books just feel like, um, yeah, they they feel like the right format for me for saying some of the things that that I want to say and and that I think um, our world needs to hear like I, I, I think that as I get older my big question is shifting it used to be what kind of stories do I want to tell what interests me and and now I continually ask myself what sort of stories do we need mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: that's really that's really great I, I, I love the idea and I, and I think that that what you just read um, really illustrates that point very well of being able to, um, like I said, distill really complicated, these things that we have, these really high-minded, heady conversations about mm-hmm. into a really, um, not easy, but simple uh, lesson that can be taken away and that can be applied, you know, at any age in, in a lot of different circumstances. So I, I think that's really That's really a profound work you're doing.
2: Well, it's kind of funny because the first book I ever published is called, Is That Story True? And I remember back when it was coming out, somebody said to me, well, what's it about? And I said, oh, it's about the distinction between literal and metaphorical truth. And they looked at me like I was crazy. (laughs) 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 So then I realized, okay, I have to find another way to describe (laughs) what the book is about. Um, But yeah, you you can say, I think, we often don't give children enough credit mm. for what they can um, absorb and process and the kinds of questions that they have. so yeah I try I try to honor children and um, and give them give them the kind of stories that they can enjoy but also grow into.
1: I'm struck just by this power of of storytelling and that distilling and I didn't realize you had a background in New Testament, mm-hmm. but that would be a place that I often go in thinking about storytelling is how Jesus used story and used, used metaphor and used the things that were around, which often were seeds and fields and mm-hmm. sheep. And, um, and it just seems like a, it's a beautiful faith question to ask the question of what are the stories that are needed right now? And and, and maybe that connects specifically to stories of scripture and how we tell them, but also, you know, we need the, what grew in Larry's garden stories. We need the stories that teach us to look for, at, for the face of God and our neighbor. We need the stories that, that teach us to expand our hearts and minds, um, and work in the way of justice and that, that there's a spiritual practice in that question um Mm -hmm. what are the stories that are needed and whether whether we are called as whether we are children's book authors or podcasters or just people who we all tell story we yes we are we all are are part of story and um i am grateful for that question that's a question that i will take forward from this conversation um And, and want to keep asking, what are those, what are those stories that are needed?
2: Yeah, I I certainly carry it with me and I think we'll do so for years to come.
0: So uh, we like to end all of our conversations with this question of what, what brings you hope? Um, And particularly in, in 2020, what brings you sort of a resilient hope, not a airy light hope, but a, a resilient hope that gets you out of bed each day to, to tell these stories?
2: Mm -hmm. Um, I'm glad you gave me this question a couple days in advance. (laughs) 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 Because honestly, I did not find it an easy one to answer. Um, I mean, on the one hand, the, the first thing that comes to mind is, is people. Um, although it's also people who drive me to despair, (laughs) so it all depends on where my attention's focused, I guess. Um, yeah, people and stories, I guess, stories about people who are generous, who are brave, who tell the truth, um, people who, people who refuse to bow down to despair, um, because there are sometimes, and I think it happens to most of us, where we just kind of feel crushed after a while, and, and you have to get an infusion from somebody else. So I think that's why I like to be tuned into other people's stories that, that help lift me up. Um, and again, it, it, in some ways, it doesn't really matter the scope of the work that somebody's doing. It could be you know, whether someone's in the Supreme Court or the, or the kindergarten classroom doesn't matter to me as much as the underlying spirit of it. Mm. Um, I heard this, I came across, across this neat quotation. Um, I think it started out as a piece of graffiti on a wall on Queen West in, in Toronto. And it, it was something like, um, hope is lighting a candle at midnight and saying to the gloom, I beg to differ or we beg to differ. And I, I was struck by that, I think, because, um, yeah, sometimes, sometimes hope is, is as small as somebody else being kind of feisty or defiant and saying, nope, there's a different way. There's a different way to look at things. There's a different way to do things. Um, and as long as there's people who, who approach life that way, then I find hope in that. Um, and I think for me, you ask specifically about 2020, I've been going for a lot of walks. And, <laughs> and I like to walk anyway, because I find that usually when I walk, that's when I'm creative, it kind of frees my mind. Um, but I've been going with my daughter a lot and um, taking my iPhone. So trying out some um, kind of contemplative photography. And I, I am finding that paying attention to the natural world has been a real Um, maybe solace is a better word than hope but um, early on in the pandemic when it was still sort of March April and and it was still in between spring and winter here um, both my daughter and I were out one day and we were we were struck by how the world was kind of doing its thing it was doing its waking up coming back to life thing oblivious to the (laughs) to (laughs) everything else that was going on and um there was something powerful about that. And then for me, for the past, um, not quite decade, I guess, I've been doing more reading in what's variously called um, big history, deep time, cosmic education. Um, And basically what that is, is the story of the the scientific story of the universe, which is fascinating enough in and of itself, cosmology and all the rest but but I'm also interested in um, ritualizing that story and um, kind of bringing the language to bear on how we live our lives every day so sometimes when um, like I've gone in and, and talked to kids in schools and I, I bring a, a jawbone of a a deer I think it is with teeth in it and we talk about um, the calcium in it that makes the teeth hard and well where does the calcium come from well you know the calcium in our teeth and our bones and the iron in our blood and the carbon in our cells comes from stars like as Carl Sagan famously said we're all made of star stuff and that is something that connects me with every other person and every other living thing and and there's just something that's really deeply um I, again, I was going to say consoling, I don't know if it's hopeful exactly, but it, it kind of brings me back to your first question, Derek, about geography, because I do have a specific geography, I have a sense of place where I came from, but, but I also have this growing sense of feeling at home in the whole cosmos, um, that I'm part of something much, much bigger than myself, and I think I derive hope from that too. Does that make sense
1: Wow. i sort of john 1 1 was just very present with me as you were speaking that in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and in this advent time that the power of the specificity of incarnation and the vastness of all all of the universe all of that is created um yeah. feels particularly poignant yeah well, thank you. Thank you for sharing your stories in writing and your stories today. And, um, where can people find you and your books?
2: Well, um, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I've, uh, I always get a little bit nervous before <laughs> for things like this, and I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. So thank you for making me feel welcome. Um, my books, I, I do have, um, a website probably the easiest place to find most of them is on Amazon and if uh, I mean I say I say that with some hesitation because I do prefer to support local booksellers but in terms of seeing what I write laid out and and easy access to it um, if you search for Laura Allery in Amazon or check out my website which is um, lauraallery.ca um you can order them either directly from the publishers or or through Amazon or ask your local bookseller because maybe they might consider bringing them in and making them, um, you know, they're on the shelf. People might see them and that's how the word gets spread.
1: They're also, um, I did make sure, this is where I've ordered it. It's from bookshop.org, which I don't okay. know if Bookshop has made it to Canada yet, but it's a new um, uh, offering. Um, at least here in the States, that um, is all online but supports local bookstores. So, a, a large portion of their proceeds goes to local bookstores. So, that's kind of an, an in between option. And your books are there. <laughs> okay, okay.
2: Yeah, that is an option for, for Canadian listeners, too. So, thank, thank you for that.
1: <laughs> so, if you want to follow Laura, you can follow her on Twitter at Laura Allery, A L A R Y 1, on Facebook at Laura Allery Author and on instagram at laura.allery again that's l-a-u-r-a dot a-l-a-r-y and you get to see beautiful little photos of her walking adventures and know what books are coming next so um, make sure that you you follow her wherever you are on social media
2: I've got a new one coming in the spring what's the title do you have a title yet I do, actually. It's uh, the third in a series that I've written on the liturgical year. It's called Breathe, A Child's Guide to Ascension, Pentecost, and Easter. Wonderful. Lovely. Oh.
0: Well, Laura, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful treat to talk to you, to hear hear the book, um, actually have the book <laughs> read to us. Like I, I'm, I'm still kind of glowing from that. Um, and, and just great to hear a little bit about your story and about your process. And So thank you for being with us.
2: Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank
1: you. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plainsong Farm, The Garden Church, and The Keep and Till. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.